Pelotero Pickle, episode 108. We have a special guest, uh, MLB veteran, almost 10 years, Jeremy Guthrie. Very interesting guy. We talk about his kind of journey coming up, going to BYU and Stanford, getting drafted, and kind of his playing experience. Um, really interesting conversation. Jeremy's a, just a pretty intriguing guy, and we loved having him on, so I think you're going to like this episode. Check it out. Pelotero Pickle, episode 108. It is Monday, November 28th. We're coming off our turkey-filled weekends, hopefully. I'm Bobby Tewksbury. Joining me, as always, is Chris Colabello. Before we get started, a reminder, send us your questions to pickle at pelotero.com or hit us up on Twitter at Pelotero Pickle. We have a special guest. I'm going to let Chris do the introduction because he likes to do those. So, Chris, take it away. Hi, Bobby. One of my most formidable opponents and a gentleman I've gotten to spend some time with here in the recent past, uh, World Series champion, Jeremy Guthrie. Yeah, and we'll get into why. <laughs> Hi, Jeremy. Thanks for coming. Hey, CC. Good to have you. Bobby, nice to meet you. And Patrick, Good to chat with you again. Excited to, uh, so- to have you here. So for anybody that can see my screen, that ball right there is signed, that one, signed by Jeremy Guthrie. It's a great signature. He's first-class penmanship, um, all-time sneakerhead. Very, like, we have a little similarities in that regard. But he's, I asked him to sign the ball, and he signed it 2015 AL East Champs. Sorry about it. So that one hurt a little bit. Sorry, not sorry, if you will. Yeah, it, yeah, like... I saw Hosmer, like, right when we got back, we saw Hosmer, and I was like, yo, how's my World Series ring? Is it shiny? Like, he's like, yeah, yeah, I've been taking good care of it. So I was like, nice. You got a better But I still like him. I like him a lot. There's a whole bunch of reasons. But he – so the thing I have to talk about is, like, you're first team all tourists. Like, you're the best tourist I've ever been around in the history of the universe. I appreciate that. We spent time in Germany. You, this guy had me on bikes riding around. It was awesome. You bring your own bike, I heard. You have your own you like, foldable yeah, bike. I bring my own bike. I had a bike made while I was playing for the Rockies. This company called um, well, SNS Couplers. Is that what they actually put on your bike? But they'll take a bike frame if it's titanium or steel, cut the bike in half, weld on some couplers so you can put it back together, which allows the bike to fit into a normal size suitcase. And so in 2012, I had one of those made. And so I traveled the majority of the, my career after that with this portable bicycle that I could put together in about 20 minutes. It's a full-size bike, and so it doesn't look like one of those small, either electric or portable bikes that fold up, but it looks like a real bicycle. And that's important so you can get off some good curbs, you know, do some nice jumps when you're touring around the world. And the bike's now been in over, I think, 10 countries or so, and a number of U.S. cities, of course. And so I get my mileage out of it. And... Uh, CC was the beneficiary of us getting on the bikes over in Munich. Yeah, I didn't know you could impressive. take a. I didn't know you could take a normal bike and have a chop like that. That's pretty cool. What's awesome. uh, when you when you were traveling throughout your career, were you a big like city explorer? You would get out and are you a foodie at all? Like, what's your when you do get out? What do you like to do? I mainly just like to see the city. I do enjoy food, but I'm easy to please. So if you give me a some of the most basic of things. I'm happy if I find a little cool spot, I'll tell everyone about it. 
But I would get up early in the morning and just get on the bike and ride. So if I was in Chicago, I'd ride along, ride along the lake and go maybe 10, 15 miles away from the hotel, which is obviously parts of the city that you typically don't see as a traveling ball player. Um, ride through the city, left and right. Just, I just try to see as much as I can. In fact, my dream job, I'll put this out there in case someone from Apple's listening. My dream job in my entire life is to be the dude that wears those huge backpacks with a camera on top of their heads and they just film roads for uh, for Apple Maps. And I saw one of these. You want to be in, a uh, you want to be a bike street view guy? Yes, I want because if you put in bike routes in a lot of places, it will say bike route unavailable. But if you put the walking route, of course, it'll show you which way to go. Car routes pop up everywhere, but bike routes are really limited. So I don't know if that means they need a dude to get out there all over the world and ride a bike. But I saw a guy in, in Porto, Portugal, last summer, and he had this big Apple backpack he looked like a stormtrooper and he just was walking and we followed him for a, for about an hour and this was walking all the different streets so that you could see everywhere in porto where you might go so that is my dream job to be the bicycle the bike route filmer for apple need it Gotta there's a there's a on youtube there's a bunch of channels that do vr tours of cities so mm-hmm. uh, you could probably create your own youtube channel for that which would be fun you wouldn't need I to like rely that. on uh you wouldn't need to rely on Apple to give you the the space trooper, but it's pretty cool because you can go like take a tour of Paris, and it's you, if you put a VR headset on, you can look around. It's the, you know that, three, that's what I do. I specialize. Camera. I specialize in tours, and so I need that. There you I go. need to be a, a a virtual tour guide. It's incredible. Love it. Hey, my well, favorite thing about me, it. you've helped me with my life goals. Now I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, my else. favorite thing. My favorite thing, and like I didn't, who who would have thought this, right? Like I play against them for the better part of three years or whatever, and I learned so much when we were over in in Europe, spending time and the like finding the restaurants, right? Uh, the the drone, the drone was incredible. Like he he got this like kind of badass drone, and we were I was a little nervous because it was like new to you, right, at the time, and. We're like flying it up over the church in Munich and trying to get like the the aerial shots and stuff like that. It was wild, and he, I wanted him to be less nervous about it. Cause worst thing, worst case scenario, it just falls hit somebody in the head. It's not that big a deal, right? <laughs> yeah. Worst so you, case you scenario, fly drones down, too. Comes down, slices a finger, and you miss a playoff game. But that's that's probably worst case scenario. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that was good. That was a good add-on right there. <laughs> that's pretty good. Yeah. So I have a, this is a good segue, I think, because you're a pretty high academic guy, just based on like where you went to school and academic history. Were you are you a history guy? Are you into into history? I really lo- I love history. Um, I didn't particularly take a lot of history courses, but my my good friend likes to tell me that I prefer a history a history documentary over watching a live sporting event, which is not true. But he'll say, "Hey, are you watching this game? Or are you watching a documentary on something?" So I do enjoy history. I love to learn about it. Um, I love shows. Like one of the greatest shows that was ever made came out right right before COVID. I, I can't even remember what it's called, but it was one of these deals where they get they made a time machine and they could go back. And there was someone that was like trying to steal the time machine and would mess up history. And so they would have to go to that that time in history and try to find them and stop them before they ruin history. Did you ever watch this show? I have no title. 
I have no network. I have nothing other than the premise. That was uh, now. It kind of reminds me the movie Tenant was like that, wasn't it? Where they they could like reverse that, time or something. There was like a weird thing with that. That wasn't a show though. That was a movie. Shoot, I watched that five, three no. or four times to get that. We just need to, to look this show up. It, it was going. amazing, but the show was kind of under that that umbrella that I love. That it was a a fictional show that included history and so you learn something even though it's not perfectly accurate you learn something about history while you're being entertained and i think that's ultimately where i love to be whether it's a book uh, a show a podcast i love that kind of inclusion of history to learn from and then kind of project it into into future application for the the reader or the viewer all i'm going to do is dig in to find out what this show is I just typed in TV shows about time travel. I got Timeless. What, is, what pulled up? I got uh, The Crossing, Sol- uh, Secrets of Sulphur Springs, Dark, Outlander, Manifest, Timeless, <laughs> Travelers. Be called. Timeless has to be the show, doesn't it? The Umbrella Academy had come out right around that time, no. too. That's my. That those are my attempts. We'll, we'll find we'll, it. I'll find. I'll find it. We'll find and it. We will add it to it our. Was, it was called Timeless. That's the one. It was Timeless. All right. I'm yeah. now going to watch that show. An amazing I'm show. Yeah. If you can, I, I feel like COVID shut it down and it just never came back. But it's an amazing show. Damn it, COVID. Anyway, Bobby, where were you going with history? Sorry, I totally cut you off and took us on an NBC. No, it's okay. it was just, I was just yeah. No, I was curious about because being like somebody that travels, I I love traveling. I I hope to travel a lot more, but I I was never really a big history guy. I just like experiencing different cultures, different foods, different people, just mindsets. So it's always interesting to me. Um the lead in on that was like how did you how did your academic life and your sports life kind of come together growing up? Where I would imagine when you were younger, you were probably one of the better players in your hometown, probably on your all-star teams, travel teams and whatnot. Um, you went to BYU originally and then transferred to Stanford. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Valedictorian at your school for high school? Yeah. yeah. And then multi-sport athlete. What, what other sports were you playing? Uh, basketball football, and football. Man. Football being my, my big focus. That's, I wanted to be a college football player, a quarterback. Quarterback? Yeah. So take us through kind of your your journey there, I guess, from a recruiting standpoint, multi-sport, baseball, football. How did how did that all shake out? Because when you're okay. looking at schools so, like that, it's, I mean, you're, kind of to, to speak a, on your original a lot question, of open doors. I'm probably more in your category of I just really love seeing places, meeting people and experiencing cultures and food and every aspect. I'm probably more on that side of things than I am the digging deep into the history and then going to historical venues. I appreciate the historical venues, but just to see them is less kind of exciting to me as it is just to experience the area. Um, so anyways, to that, that being said, I think really what introduced me or what opened me up to travel and culture and whatnot was being, I lived in Spain for two years when I was 19 years old as a missionary for my church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And that was really the first time I had ever left the country other than going to Toronto for a a quick baseball tournament my senior year. And so that's really what opened up my interest and appreciation for um, travel and maybe more specifically culture and people from around the world. So with that, I've 
took the opportunity through baseball to, to see as much of the world as I could. I, with baseball, I traveled to China, Panama, Nigeria, Cuba, Japan, Australia, Mexico, Brazil, um, and a few other places doing baseball clinics or whatever it might have been and playing. So um, that's really been a passion of mine really since I was 19 years old. Um, in terms of like my development or, or kind of path through um, through sports, started when I was very young. My dad played uh, small college football at Southern Oregon College. My brother ended up playing that same college uh, you know, 20 years later. And I was a, they were both quarterbacks there. And so I grew up in a family where football was really our primary sport. We all played three sports. It just so happened that uh, I did basketball and baseball as well. And I love baseball. When I was younger, baseball was probably my favorite. But as I got older and grew up in this community in Ashland, Oregon, where football really was our kind of our community bonding experience, that's where everyone went on Friday nights. And, and that's really where our success had been as a, as a high school. Football quickly became, became my favorite. We had a great coach, Jim Nagle, who was not just a good X's and O's coach, but a really good life coach and prepared us, you know, for, um, for college and for life and for just learning skills that would help us be contributors to society and the workforce. And so football was really my passion. I wanted to do that. It was just because I threw a baseball 97, 98 miles per hour as a senior that I was given a chance to go pitch in college. And so I, I received a scholarship to go pitch at BYU. And uh, they asked if I would just focus on baseball for that scholarship. And I said, yes. So that's uh, that was kind of the end of my basketball and baseball and football career and baseball at BYU. I didn't do particularly well. And so uh, after I took two years off in Spain, I came back and I actually transferred to Stanford, as you said. And at Stanford, I was surrounded by just a really good group of teammates. I just remember the first day I got there, they, they had no idea who I was. They kind of knew each other, but I was a transfer student. So there was like, you know, who are you? Where'd you come from? And so welcoming. I just, they were so awesome. The upperclassmen, the incoming freshmen, it made all the difference to me. And that's really where my love of baseball was rekindled and probably, you know, to a much higher level. And we had coaches that were fantastic from Mark Marquis, our head coach, to Dean Stotts, and our pitching coach was Tom Kunis. And those three coaches just changed my the trajectory of my career and certainly my life as a result uh, from transferring to Stanford. And so I got there in 2000. I pitched there in 01 and 02. And um, you know, it just means uh, just really, those are really memorable years of my life, both the high school years, learning about life through football and then college, um, kind of growing that love and passion and skill set for, for what eventually became a professional career. I think the thing that blew me away the most talking to you, and we, we had a few significant car rides and bus trips while we were over there, and so we got to, to chat a lot, was your perspective is spectacular in terms of, I think it's probably a combination of your personality, your faith, and the opportunities and the things that, that your game, the game has probably presented to you, but um, you said something to me like that, that made so much sense, and... Um, how much do you think the going on the mission impacted your perspective moving forward as you went from BYU to Stanford and all the opportunities that came after that? One of the lessons I learned, this, the point of a mission is to really lose yourself in serving other people. And it revolves around a, 
you know, a spiritual message that missionaries share, but it includes a lot more than that. And I think the number one expectation that you should or, or are taught to have is that you become secondary to those around you. And when you focus on other people and, and making their lives better versus worried about making your, your own life better, you are enriched tremendously. And anyone that's experienced this, I mean, the most common place to experience seems to be as a parent. You'll hear a parent all the time talk about how they've changed or people have observed their change because there's someone now in their life that they value more than themselves probably in their kids. And the time in Spain allowed me both to do it that way, but also just to have priorities in my life. And I think that the greatest blessing I had as a professional baseball player was having a deeper sense and purpose in my life than just to be a professional baseball player. And I think the majority of coaches and organizations would want a guy that's just all in on baseball or all in on their profession. But I think maybe if you reflect on your experiences of those around you, those who are just all in and die hard and nothing else matters to them except that one thing, it can be a dangerous place to be. And baseball tests you. It is the ultimate fiery furnace of affliction. And your your success is fleeting at all times. And your success is actually dressed and surrounded in failure. Your, three, your 300 batting average is surrounded by an 0 for 7 somewhere. And so having other priorities that help you, and not necessarily other priorities, but a, a firm priority that you know is most important to you, can be very helpful. And I'll say that in my career, when I struggled greatly mightily in, in the minor leagues and even in the big leagues, but most maybe more specifically in the minor leagues, I saw a lot of guys struggle like I did. And when baseball was not there for them, they had nothing else to turn to. And ultimately their careers were over very quickly. Um, I had kind of a, a foundation that I was building upon and what I ultimately, who I wanted to be and who I felt I was destined to be. And Baseball was a part of it, but it wasn't who I was. I wasn't a baseball player. I was an individual that uh, had baseball as a talent that I could build off and use to make the world a better place, to bless lives, and to provide for a family. And so I don't know if that's what you're referring to, but I just feel like those who are just all in and have nothing else, it makes baseball that much harder because it's already hard enough as it is. And so having yeah. core beliefs, core fundamentals to your life will actually make you a better baseball player or a better anything, in my opinion. And that helped me through the struggles in AA Akron, AAA Buffalo, um, because those were really hard times. But I could rest on what I knew I was, who I was, and continue to work forward, not feeling like my life was completely over because I had a six and a half ERA in AAA and the team was no longer confident in my abilities to get people out. So uh, that, that's pretty awesome. It's, it's, it's incredible, right? Because, and this is where I, I'm, I, I think in a lot of ways I, I envy that ability, right? Because coming up and, and I think it's a message that we pass along to amateur players. Now work hard, uh, you know, commit to something, uh, go all in and, and you end up creating these, just these stresses, these unnecessary stress in life that literally take away from the idea of play ball, right? Like it's play ball. It's not work ball. It's not stress ball. And I tell kids that all the time. And I'm, I'm so 
I think your message is incredible and it's something that we need to have resonate through players at a younger age and that needs to become part of the way we develop young athletes because I heard Kobe talking about this in in an interview that he did before he passed. It was so much, he talked about fear and confidence and, you know, belief in yourself and, and how neither one of those two things can be too powerful and they have to kind of balance each other off. And I think that's what the, the staying even keel part that people always talk about is mentally what you're alluding to is I think what allowed you to be, I think, prepared much better than most at, uh, at a, you know, kind of inflection points in, in life, probably. Yeah. I think going back to what Bobby said, you know, I played three sports and I think that's a very vital component that is lost in, in a lot of sports programs today or through coaches is that, you have to be all in on one to be the best version of yourself in that one and and let it be known that I am a, a firm believer and advocate for playing multiple sports. If you want to be a better ba- baseball player, I think you should play basketball. If you want to be a better baseball player and a better team, I think you should play football or wrestle or do track or whatever it might be, golf even. Something that allows you to take different skill sets, do different movements, um, develop different muscles will allow you to be a better baseball player. And so I think that's a small component of what you're saying, CC is like you have to be well-rounded. You have to be balanced. And I think there's this kind of belief that the best way to be good at something is to go all in on just that one thing. And I think that's, I think we've lost something over the years um, in taking that approach. And so let it, you know, I'm just a, a big advocate. If a kid asks me what they should do, I, I'm always quick to say, if you want to be the best at a basketball, I think you should do other things as well. And then commit yourself. Still work hard and put in the time on the basketball court, but develop other things as well. And it's not just physical things that you develop by playing other sports, but it's emotional, mental approaches that can help you become better at your preferred sport, if you will. For sure. I was that all that was all really, really powerful. I know I've personally struggled with just identity and being too caught up with being a baseball person, like you grew up your whole youth and in, in high school, like you go in my yearbook, everybody's talking about my baseball stuff. It's, you know, that's, that's kind of who your, your personal brand is. Um, I even feel it with, with business too, where stepping outside of baseball feels awkward for me sometimes when, if I just want to talk business. Um, I think a bigger issue now as well is the, if you go on Twitter, you go on social media, the whole kids want to make commitments. There's this, this obsession with kids making commitments to schools and being committed. And it's dangerous. It's really dangerous because those, you know, verbal commitments are not real commitments. And there's this rush to be something that you're not. And you, they get so caught up and they get so concerned with it. It's a big deal. It's, you know, if you're committing to like your dream school or whatever that, you know, it's a big deal, but kids get so caught up in it. They get caught up in thinking they need to be good. They get caught up in, have such little perspective. I ran track in high school, indoor track. The The type of competition is so different when it's just you running a race. And it's like, it's just, you got to figure out how to push through in ways that you don't with baseball because, you know, baseball, you could strike out and go back to the bench and you're not competing anymore. When you're, when you're in a race, it's not over till you cross the line. You gotta, you gotta figure it out. Um, I never played football, but uh, I found ways to get injured playing baseball and running track. So I, I never wanted to get hurt playing football, but um, I think 
that whole identity thing is most players probably do fight with that. And they, um, the other Bob Tewksbury, he was my host dad first summer. And those were things that we would talk about then and about his career. Now he's, he's a sports psychologist now, but he essentially said at the time he needed to find, he needed to find a different identity for himself after his career was over. And he still liked baseball. He still wanted to be involved in baseball, but he needed a different career path to be able to like be himself, I guess. Anyway, so you ended up having a a pretty cool career, I think. You played for uh, four, five different organizations, technically six, uh, if you will, if, if you add the last one. Um, <laughs> you, don't, you don't want to add that last two thirds of an inning. That's reasonable. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> I don't yeah. either. If we could take off the stats, it'd be it'd be a much <laughs> much more pleasant memory. Although I, I yeah. love the people in the organization and, and the opportunity, but yeah. We could take yeah. off the two thirds of an inning and the fourteen earned runs. <laughs> yeah. So you ended up get you got drafted in the first round, right? Which had to have been a pretty cool experience in and of itself. I, I I don't know what it's like to get drafted, but I imagine getting drafted in the first round. Like how did how did that all kind of come about? Like it was that really those couple years at Stanford that where I yeah. think you, you took huge strides. College World Series also. Um, you know like the just. The unique thing now is you probably get this a lot as well. Anytime you meet a young athlete that's got the chance to go on scholarship to a to a school to play baseball or potentially be drafted, you know the parents and the the, the player might ask you a lot of questions about the process and what was it like and what should I do with agents or this that and the other. And it's crazy because what is this now? Twenty five years later from when I was originally drafted in nineteen ninety seven it's all different. Like I can speak from my experience, but knowing a little bit about what I know now from NIL to, you know, limited rounds to whatever else there might be included, it's a totally different world. And so I, as much as I try to give advice and try to give perspective and talk someone through it, it's, it's really challenging to do that. And, and maybe you recognize that same thing. It's just a totally different world now. Um, but I was drafted three times actually as an amateur I was drafted in the 15th round out of high school by the New York Mets. I was drafted as a 21-year-old sophomore uh, following those two years in Spain by the Pittsburgh Pirates in the third round out of Stanford. And then I was drafted 22nd overall in the first round by the Cleveland Indians in 2002. And so uh, third time obviously was a charm. That's when I did sign. Signed a, uh, I actually signed a major league contract out of the draft. So it was a four-year deal. And Maybe the biggest difference between that and, and a general signing bonus is which you know ninety nine percent of the players get was that the very first year I was not in the major leagues I was I had to use an option and so at the time I think it was three options or four options in the first five years something like that was the rule um, I was actually burning up options which was going to accelerate the team's need to make a decision on me as a major league player. And uh, it actually certainly dictated and drove my career because I was optioned the first four years of my career. And so every year out of spring training, I had to get optioned. I wasn't just reassigned to a minor league team, but I was optioned to a minor league team. And so after four years with the, with the Cleveland Indians, I was out of options. And so they either had to put me on the roster or put me through waivers. And they chose to put me on waivers, and I was claimed by the Baltimore Orioles. So my signing bonus really dictated where my career went um, in a way that is a little bit different than the, the everyday draft pick. 
but um, you know the reasons I didn't sign the every t- the reasons I didn't sign in the first two times were, were unique. The first one was really about my commitment to my faith. The second one was more of my commitment to my education and, and really believing in myself. I was offered $1.2 million by the Pirates uh, out of the third round in, in 2001, and I chose to go back to school. And so I was now going to be – actually, I was now 22 years old. I misspoke. I was 22 years old when I was drafted in the third round by the Pirates, and they made the same claim that had been made a couple of times. If I don't sign right now, I'll never get drafted again. And, you know, they had some reason at 22 years old, I would be 23 before I could be drafted again. Um, But it just goes to show you, and this is one of the things I share with young kids. I tell them pretty much this. This is my one message that I still feel applies today as it did 25 years ago. The teams will tell you whatever they want to tell you to accomplish their purpose. They'll lie to you. They'll tell you whatever they want. And at the end of the day, if you're good enough, you will always have another, another chance. Now, if you're not good enough, I tell them, I said, if you're not good enough, you may not get another chance. And what is the risk? It's probably just financial. It's only financial. If you don't sign and they offer you 500 grand and you're not good enough and you come back and you bet on yourself and you're, you never get drafted again, what did it cost you? It cost you about $300,000 after taxes. That's what it cost you. But I said, if you, you know, it, it, if you're good enough, you can, number one, you can get drafted again. And on top of that, you can even make more money and you can be closer to the major leagues. And so does it really matter if you do or don't sign right now? I said, only if you care about the money. And in reality, if you care more about two hundred or $300,000 than you do about the millions you can make if you develop properly and become a good player, I said, that's going to look like peanuts. The $300,000 you missed in the bonus because you went back and bet on yourself, it's not going to change your life. It never will. And so if education is important to you, then go get your education because it's a whole lot easier to play the game of baseball with the, the mindset and the security of an education than it is saying, if I don't make it to Major League Baseball, I'm done. Like, I won't have enough money. I won't have an education. I won't have a job. What am I going to do? Like, that's a lot of pressure to put on yourself. And so those were part of the reasons, kind of long story uh, as to why I didn't sign the first two times. And I'm an, I was evidenced 25 years ago or 20 years ago as it is now because 2 was when I signed. And I don't know if it's still the same or not, but they told me many times I would never be drafted again. And at the end of the day, I was drafted again every single time. And so your talent will dictate your opportunities. And at the end of the day, your talent generally will dictate your compensation for your talents. Um, But, uh, you know, that's, that's my experience. I know it's true for me. I believe it's true for others, but sometimes that's very hard to convince family or a young player that that's really the way it is but they'll tell you whatever they want to tell you just to get you to try to sign a contract in that moment because they're looking out for themselves and that's reasonable right the perspective you have is incredible right because and you just mentioned the way families and and kids look at it because we're always thinking about as, as a general rule i would say society's thinking about what's next right we're we're trying to envision the future. We're trying to see what's next instead of really being present, being where you are, as they like to say, being on the ground, be here right now. Um, it's amazing to me. And again, I'm thankful to have gotten to know you a little bit and spent some ample time with you because I feel like I learned so much in the five days or whatever it was, or six days that we were together that kind of perspective just 
it doesn't come around a lot. And I think hearing you talk about it, it, it's abundantly clear to me that those things were real for you at the time. And I think part of what made you successful as a player, um, the thing that I think of as you uh, as an opponent was just always seemed like regardless of the situation, you were very much in control. I don't think I ever saw you really get emotional on the field to a point where it, you know, it stood out in either good or bad, um, which is a testament. I, I, I think it's a probably why I felt like I was over a hundred against you instead of over three or whatever it was. Um, so kudos to you for that, I guess. Um, talk about your big league debut a little bit. Um, what was that moment like for you? Um, did it feel like, you know, you'd achieved something or was it more, was there more to it? I guess. Yeah. I appreciate the question and, and the kind words. Um, to go back to your previous question, being drafted in the first round was exciting. I remember I was in college at the time and they called me at our, in my, you know, I was married already at 23 years old. And so my wife and I were there, the Cleveland Indians called and said, you know, we we're going to select you with our next pick 22 overall. Congratulations. We look forward to speaking with you. And so it really was a highlight. We celebrated together, the two of us in the, in my married housing at Stanford university. Um, that was a highlight. I'll say kind of probably counterintuitively my debut was a highlight, but it wasn't in a lot of ways because uh, I, I began my career in 03 in AA. They started me first in AA. I went six and two with a 1.44 ERA, I think it was, in my first 10 starts. And I gave up four runs in my last start. So imagine that I was I was five and two, or I was six and one with like a, a 1.0 in my first nine starts. And, and they told me, actually, said, listen, we're going to, yeah, the decent two shutouts in my first five starts in double A. This is um, easy, man. This is easy. It really it did. It, it didn't, I didn't take it for granted. It just felt like college. People said, why are you being so successful? I said, it feels like I'm back at college. Like the guys I'm facing, a lot of them, I faced them in college. They're double A guys that have a great amount of talent. It just feels like I'm back there. I had a great catcher. Um, Brian Luterer was my catcher and a great manager and pitching coach. Steve Kamins was my, my, or Brad Kamins was our manager. Steve Lyons was my pitching coach. And this was good. Like it was a good setting. So the Indians called me and said, listen, we want to bring you up to the big leagues. And this is two months into a career, right? I just started my professional career, but we're going to send you to AAA first to get a few starts in. The first hitter I faced in AAA hit the first home run I allowed as a professional baseball player. Um, you know, three, two count hits a bomb. I lose the game. I give up like six runs. I give up another six runs, my next start. And when it's all said and done, my couple of starts in AAA to get ready for the big leagues turned into a four and nine record with a seven ERA in my first season. So that's how I finished my first professional season. Went from six and two with a one, four to four and nine with a seven. Came back the next year, walked 19 hitters in my first like 15 innings in AAA, and they sent me back to AA. In AA, I just kind of treaded water. Good start here, bad start. I think I went eight and eight with a four and a half. So literally like just the quintessential average right in the middle. Uh, never consistent, never really great. Didn't have that same magic that I had the year before. No shutouts, just kind of just treading water. And as when, it was then in August, they moved me to the bullpen. 
And this for me was like, I hated the bullpen. I hated the idea of the bullpen. I much preferred the routine of a starter. That's what I enjoy doing. That's what I'd always done. I don't think I'd ever pitched in relief in my life, except in high school when I just would offer to pitch the second game of a doubleheader after having started the first game. <laughs> and so like for me, like my career was over in my second year. Like I was being demoted to the bullpen. They had lost confidence in me. And now I'm going to do a role that I suck at and I'll probably never be good again. And so I pitched out of the bullpen one day and, and, you know, admittedly, I was really frustrated. I acted like a child. I was really just pissed off and I let the whole world know, the team knew, the world was against me and the organization would give up on me too quickly. And I essentially was just acting like a buffoon and pitched two games out of the bullpen. We're on our bus ride to Harrisburg. And on that bus ride, the manager calls me up to the front and I'm just certain that he is going to lecture me and, and, and tell me what I needed to hear about being a good teammate and being a professional baseball player and just, you know, respecting the fact that I sucked and that's what I had probably deserved. So he calls me up and I'm just nervous. What's he going to say to me? Am I going to single A? Like, am I released? Are you just going to yell at me? And he goes, hey, I know you don't like pitching out of the bullpen in double A. It's not something you like doing, is it? I said, no. He said, well, how would you like to pitch out of the bullpen in the big leagues? I thought, well, that sounds much better. He said, well, then how about you take a flight tonight and fly up to Cleveland for tomorrow's game? And so, you know, I felt Was this really, Brad? Was this Brad comments? Yeah, again? this was Brad. I got a funny story about that, but keep going. And so I just feel like my, my draft day status or my draft day reaction versus my first call-up were totally different because I, I honestly felt embarrassed. I didn't feel like I deserved it. I didn't feel prepared for it or anything but I was going to the big leagues. And so my debut occurred on August 28th, 2004 uh, in a ninth inning role against the Chicago White Sox. I came in, my first hitter was Jose Valentin. I went fastball, fouled off, slider for a strike, curveball, ticket for a strike, three pitches, one punch out. The next guy, was Joe, next, next guy was Joe Creedy, 94 miles an hour in the ribs, first pitch. Next guy was Joe Borcher, a Stanford guy who played before I got there. Uh, first pitch double play. So five innings or five pitches, one punch out, one hit by pitch, one double play. What was what was the uh, adrenaline like at that in those moments? I was nervous. I had no idea if I could throw a strike. Uh, you know what's interesting? People always ask, "What's your favorite place to pitch?" Um, Cleveland is one of my least favorite places to pitch, and it's mostly because when they hit the ball there, I don't know if this is the same for a hitter, but the way that it echoes off that really big kind of press box behind home plate, to me it sounds 10 times louder than it does at other stadiums. So when someone hits a ball hard there, my first home run was Omar Infante for the Tigers at the time. He hit yeah, the like ball, eight. <laughs> it sounded like he hit it out of a rocket ship. Like it just sounded so loud. Every time someone hit it, I, I would flinch because it felt like someone hit the ball so hard against me. And so I was always uncomfortable pitching <clears throat> in Cleveland. 82 career homers, Chris, not eight. 82 yeah, was, quick fact it's the same quick fact check that was, was well that was a little shady of you it was mean homer it was mean homer. no but I, <laughs> like his stories are like so epic and like the, i i could listen to this guy talk all day it's incredible but that was and that just, was my that was my introduction um my my debut and uh that's a weird that's a weird mindset to be in where you're you're walking up to the coat to the principal's office on the bus yep. being like, Oh, I'm in trouble. And he just calls you up. So then you're dealing with the emotions, knowing that you weren't behaving in a professional manner in, in the way that you just should have. You imagine, knew, right? 
imagine showing up in the clubhouse and, you know, you know, as a big leaguer, you know you follow to some extent what's going on in the minor leagues. Certainly if there's a big prospect, you hear about it and coaches talk about it. Maybe the media shares, hey, you know, Manny Machado's down in AA right now knocking the cover off the ball. What do you think? Uh, he's probably going to make his debut here quick. Matt Weeders, those are guys that when I was with Baltimore that you hear a lot about. You know, they probably heard like, how about Guthrie? Went back down to AA. He's got a four and a half. He's in the bullpen now. And then I show up, oh, my gosh, hey, congrats. Like, how you been throwing? I'm like, crappy. Like, so bad. So bad. <laughs> and the bullpen outing was just okay. I walked a guy, hit a guy, struck a guy. Like, just, you know, I was just embarrassed, like, that I was there. Because in reality, I really felt like I was getting preferential treatment because I was a first-rounder. And that's probably the way it was. Like, they had, they had made an investment in me. They needed to figure out where I fit into their ball club. I was already burned up two options of four. And so for them, in this moment in August of, of 04, they felt like they needed to get a little more information on me. And uh, and they did. I pitched. I actually pitched all right. That was the best of my three years in Cleveland. I pitched, I think, nine games, maybe 11 and two-thirds innings. And I think my ERA was 4, 6, 3. How am I doing? You guys got the numbers. What do we I got? got? Nine down. games, 11. 11, 11 and two-thirds, nine hits, six runs. What was my ERA? All over. Four, four, seven, four, five, four, six, three. Uh, in 04, 4, 6, 3. There you go, four six three. So that was actually the best I pitched out of the bullpen. The next two years, I came up in various opportunities out of the bullpen, and my ERA was much higher, and I didn't pitch as well. But um, my most memorable outing, I'll just share it with you, was my second outing. Came in Yankee Stadium, uh, you know, first year for a Rod there at Yankee as a Yankee, and we were ahead. Actually, I believe the score was sixteen to zero in the seventh, and uh, you know. I had no, I still had no idea how does the bullpen work. What am I going to pitch? I had pitched two days before, and so I'm looking at nine, ten other guys next to me who haven't pitched in three days, and so even up sixteen nothing, like I did not think I was going to pitch. I'm like, this is sweet, Yankee Stadium, sixteen nothing. Jody Garrett's hitting mass monster bombs off these guys. I can like we had Ben Broussard's taking people deep. We had all these you know guys with the Indians that were just raking that day. And all of a sudden, the, the phone rings. And I, last thing I think is that I'm going to pitch. And they're like, Guthrie, get up. And I'm like, me? Of all the, like, I just pitched two days ago. What about all these guys? And so I like went from like super comfortable to like, oh, geez, now I have to go and see if I can throw strikes again and be a good pitcher. And so I went in there the first <laughs> inning. I think I struck out A-Rod, or maybe that was the second inning. I can't remember. But I, I, I went in the first inning and pitched a one, two, three. And I'm like, oh, phew, I made it through this. I'm good. And then we dropped a six spot. Get back out They're there. Like, oh, you know, it's 22 nothing. I'm like, okay, no big deal. If I pitch another inning, no problem. But then someone comes up to me like, hey, you know, finish this out strong. Finish strong. I'm like, give me a pep talk in a 22 nothing game. I'm not that bad. Like, I'm not going to blow a 22 run lead. Uh, turns out 10 years, 15 years later, I could probably blow a 22 run lead. But they didn't know that. And I didn't know that. So they're like, give me a pep talk. I'm like, why is this guy pep talking me up 22 nothing? He's like, if we finish this game off, It'll be the largest shutout loss at Yankee Stadium history. And so he's like, I'm like, oh crap, there is actually some pressure here. I can make some history if I finish this game with a you know with a zero in the ninth inning. So I went from like nervous to feeling good about things to feeling relaxed to back to feeling nervous. Went back out there and got my three outs. And uh, I have the I kept the dirt from my spikes, I kept the ball from the outing and on the I have the newspaper clipping. It was, I forget what they trashed the Yankees the next day saying it was the worst loss at home as a, in a shutout ever in the history of the stadium. So I wish I would have got so the you same. Beat the, 
you've beat the Yankees worse than anybody in the history of yes, baseball. Yes, I was a part of history. The, wor- the worst loss ever at Yankee Stadium, the old Yankee Stadium I was at, and I pitched two innings. So, so I'm going to go back to – you want to hear my baseball is a small community moment? Let's hear it. I had no idea Brad Kaminsk or Kaminsk as Kaminsk as I think is the proper pronunciation was your manager. In 1994, my dad and I went back to Italy. My dad had managed in San Marino in 91 and 92. 93, we came back to the States. 94, 95, I go back to Italy. He's going to go be the assistant GM for the basketball team in Fort Lee, which is how we became friendly with Daryl Dawkins. And playing for Rimini, which was the team my dad played for his whole career, was this American guy who had been to the big leagues, outfielder Brad Kaminsk. And I got really close with Brad in town. Um, I followed him around. I was like a little kid. I was like, oh, my God, you play in the big leagues. And um, I actually found one of his baseball cards that I, I didn't. It was one of the I don't know who you are when I would look through my cards to see if I could find Cecil Fielder or, uh, you know, uh, Alan Trammell or whoever it was. And um, Brad Kaminsk happened to be uh, my first, I guess, introduction to a big leaguer in uh, in Italy. And because of that, I got close with him. And then I actually... I touched base with him back when I was playing. Uh, I saw that he was managing in the minors, and I never, I didn't even think to put two and two together that he was your manager because I knew he was in the Indians organization. So, uh, small world, man, really yeah. small world. So good, he was the guy that guy. gave you your your call up to the big leagues, and he was the one that gave me my shut up, little kids, leave me alone. I'm trying to go get a hit in the Italian <laughs> league as I was the bat boy for the team or whatever. But Absolutely, that's awesome. That's good stuff. Awesome. So then. You end up in Baltimore, and I th- that's probably where you. I would say you probably cemented yourself as a as a starter, really, yeah. in your career. Yeah, absolutely. And I made the team. I was released by the Indians, or better said, claimed by the Baltimore Orioles before '07. And for a side note here, you'd be love you'd love to know this, uh, Cece. I was on my way to Las Vegas from Utah, where I was living at the time for a Justin Timberlake future sex love sounds concert by myself. Cause my wife had withdrawn herself because her sister was going to have her first baby. And so I just can't leave and risk that my sister has her baby while I'm gone. I have to stay back. And I think she probably expected me to stay back. I'm like, okay, we'll see you in a couple days. I'm going to Timberlake. Later. So went to my very first Justin Timberlake concert and I'm driving down and uh, the GM or the assistant GM, actually probably was Mark Shapiro calls me uh, as I'm driving down. He's like, hey, Jeremy, a few pleasantries. And it says, listen, we had to make a tough decision. We signed Trot Nixon. We got to take someone off the roster to clear space for him. We've designated you for assignment. And kind of gave me like, you know, thank you and this, that, and the other. And, and I was like so happy that I was going to Timberlake. I'm like, okay, no worries. You know, whatever. Now, Mark. I didn't really We're bringing understand. sexy back. Let's go. <laughs> so, listen, he essentially just fired me from my job. No real promise that I'll get another opportunity. But I'm like, no worries. It's all good. You know, thanks yeah. a lot for everything you guys did. And I really was feeling confident at that time. I had overcome my struggles of 03, 4, and 5. And by the end of 06, I had a good year in Buffalo. I was 9 and 5 with a 3 1 4, I believe, and pitched to the point where I was confident. Every time I went out there, I felt like I could get people out. And so, whether it was with the Indians or whether it was with somebody else, I didn't really care at that point. So, I just blew it off and said, no big deal. Went to my Timberlake concert, Pink opened for him. She was amazing. Pink's un- incredible. As you, if you've ever seen her in, in concert, she's amazing. Um, and then when I came back, I was claimed by the Baltimore Orioles, who I think were the third team in order. I think it was Tampa, 
and then Kansas City had an option to claim me, and then Baltimore. So I went to Baltimore, made the team as the 25th guy, um, the last guy to be named to the team in 07. Pitched out of the bullpen. A couple of our guys got injured. Adam Lowen was injured, I think. Steve, uh, not Steve Traxel, but Jarrett Wright was injured, and that's what opened the door for me to start. And I made a couple of good starts, and at that point, you know, I made, I think, 25 starts that year as a rookie, and then the next year I started opening day for the Baltimore Orioles. You're all over your that. stats. It was 26. 26. I got your, your baseball reference page go. up. There you go. So I have a question because uh, there's there's been a little bit of a theme with your playing career with managing emotions, managing doubts, managing fears, I guess. How did that evolve? You just mentioned in 06 – kind of figured out in AAA you felt like you could get people out. Was that in your preparation? Was it mindset? Was it like just physical ability that you could repeat stuff better? What what really changed for you? And like how did that – because you went from basically being up and down and then from 07 to 14, 15, you were just – you were a big leaguer. So what, what was the shift there? I, I what, think, what was different? Really good question. The common thread that I learned as a high school athlete – was defining success. And as John Wooden puts it, success is the peace of mind that is a direct result of the self-satisfaction that comes in knowing you've done your best to become the best you're capable of becoming. And so the preparation is spot on. No matter the results, I was trying to find my success and define my success in my daily preparation and my personal effort to do the best I could to become the best I was capable of becoming. And that means accepting that if your best is not good enough, you're still a success and not a failure. And that's really challenging for people in general to understand. But even when I sucked, when I was doing the things that I had determined would help me be the best I could be, when I was applying the things that coaches were giving to me that I felt would help me improve, regardless of the outcomes on the field, I could feel peace in my mind to know that I was successful. So I wasn't successful to the newspaper reporters because they saw me as a pitcher who had received a $4 million contract out of the draft as a first rounder. And I was in double A with an ERA in the fives. That was not success to them. But success to me was preparing, working hard, watching video, throwing bullpens, asking questions, working with other pitchers as much as I could to become better. And so I felt in some level successful albeit disappointed in the results. It didn't mean I didn't feel disappointed, frustrated, and even sometimes outright angry at how bad I was pitching, but I felt successful. And so that was really, that has been and was at that time the backbone of who I was as an athlete and as a baseball player. I could be successful completely dependent on my efforts and my approach to the game. And nothing that happened on the field could either add to it or take away from it. I wanted the results to be better, but I understood I didn't control them. Once I threw the baseball, I was at the mercy of a Chris Colabello and whomever I was facing that day as to what my fate was going to be. All I could do was throw the pitch to the best of my ability to the location I felt was the best location to give me a chance to succeed. And so that's what carried me through. And ultimately, in 06, the results began to match the self-satisfaction of knowing I was doing my best. But I didn't turn, I didn't slow down. I just kept going, right? So when I sucked, I was working hard and I was focused and trying to improve. 
and when I became a better pitcher, I was trying to do the same thing. And so I wanted to improve and wanted to get better. And that was what really what my mindset was throughout my career was never satisfied, try to never be complacent and assume you've made it, but to constantly give my best effort so that I could continue to feel successful as a, as a player and as a teammate. That's awesome. That's uh, I think really, that really awesome. whole segment, that whole segment should just be its own standalone video because to be honest with you, man, that's, I think you just described the everything, right? Like in, I, I, it's kind of from a mental standpoint, I think that's like the Holy grail is the, the being able to balance. I'm having success, but I, I still want more and removing the burden of fear that is, you know, holding people back or, or threatening or creating anxiety. And that's, as an athlete, I think that's the place where you get to. I, I've been calling it the Zen flow state, really, where you're the, the results on the field are, are are insignificant in a way where you're just taking care of your preparation, your process every day, and whether you're good or bad on any given day, it's like what are what are my what are my keys, what are my focal points for tomorrow or tonight that I have to I have to drive forward. And that's as I I tell Bobby all the time. It's like when one day rolls into the next during the season, I, there's this very distinct feeling I had as a player when one day just becomes the next and it almost feels like there's no separation. That's when I performed at my best, I think throughout my career. So it's, it's awesome to hear it from your perspective. It's way said way better than I could ever. So um, thank you for that. That was awesome. Yeah. <clears throat> were there, were, uh, uh, I want I want to drill down into that a little bit more. Were there any specific routines or specific, I guess, like how you scouted teams, how you studied hitters? Were there influential teammates or coaches that taught you things that that made a big difference with that? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. Um, some of the routines I developed, I love the towel drill. Uh, one of my deficiencies that was limiting my success on the field was my direction towards home plate and you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I was an athlete that I felt like I could probably throw as much as I wanted and was relatively healthy. You know, I never suffered an injury from pitching during my career. I went on the DL uh, twice, but one of them was for a bike accident, and one of them was almost like out of spite from the team. I got put on the DL in September when in reality no one should go on the DL, but because my shoulder was a little bit sore, they're like, we're going to put you on the DL almost out of spite. It was kind of a weird circumstance, but um so I could have thrown more, but I, I just learned and watched someone do a towel drill. And most people do towel drill with the intent to get longer, you know, longer extension. But in reality, the towel drill just allows you to mimic your pitching form without throwing a baseball. And so if you're a young pitcher listening to this right now, like and you're looking for a drill that will allow you to work on mechanical things, whether it's balance point, whether it's arm slot, whether it's front side glove, you know, being strong with it. You can work on anything in pitching using a towel, which just alleviates the stress of throwing additional pitches with a ball in your hand. So that's the way I used it. That was a drill I was, you know, all the way through the end of my career. I did towel drill three to five times a week or between each start, essentially, um, because I wanted to feel confident that my direction was right, that my arm slot was right, and that I was everything was in tune with where I wanted to be. So that was one drill. My weights were uh, my weight program was really important to me. Um, I love routine and, and I like to to get those done in a consistent way. So my my weight routine never did, didn't change for 15 years. It was the exact same, the exact same days, 
almost the exact same weight and reps. Uh, that was part of it. I don't like running, but the running that I did was consistent. Um, what really changed, probably this stems from your other part of your question, was there a coach that was influential? All the coaches were influential in some way, right? Some of them maybe more negatively than positively. Um, but Kenny Rowe, uh, who's passed, you know, years past, but he had an impact on a lot of people's careers. He was an old school pitching coach. They moved him from rookie ball where he had been for years with the Cleveland Indians and Mahoney, or not, Mahoney Valley, I think is what it was called. But they moved him up to AAA in 05. And I, I think it was probably because there were some prospects there that were stunted in their growth, me being one of them. And I think they wanted an old school guy that had a good understanding, a good track record to just come in and see if he could help us. And so it was one afternoon, I think it was late 05. We were getting beat up as a staff and he came in and he said, listen, who here thinks they can be successful pitching up in the zone? And a few dudes rose their hand. I mean, I wasn't going to fall for that trick. I knew that this was not like something you could win the battle. <laughs> but one of the guys I listened, he said, one of my teammates is like, you can actually get away with it. Everyone else should put their hand down. And from this day forward, you should never throw a pitch that's between the knees or the thigh and the belly ever again. And if you do, you're going to be out of this game so quickly that you won't even know what hit you. He says, you have to be low ball pitchers if you want to be successful here. And this obviously is a little bit different than the approach today when we talk about pitching up in the zone. But he just was speaking generally. You can't get hurt as much down at the knees as you can when you're mid-thigh, belt high. He says, if you want to be good, just focus on that one thing and you will improve. And so jokingly, we went out the next day and like, like okay, we're all low ball pitchers. And I remember with my partner just throwing the ball as hard as I possibly could right at his shins over and over. And he just just wearing them off the tops of the feet, off the shins, the bouncing balls, and he's pissed off at me. But he's doing the same thing back to me, and I'm trying to scoop him. And like, it was a, it was a, it was not a part of my day I looked forward to. Like the least favorite part of my day was having to go play catch because we were trying to be low ball pitchers and catch. But it taught us something. We began to focus every throw we made being low in the zone, and that one focus actually changed my entire career. And I went from trying to be a guy that was trying to be perfect on the corners early in the strike zone that expand a little bit late. I said, I don't care where the pitch goes. I just want it to be low. Like, I don't care if it's in the middle of the plate, outside, inside. I'm not aiming anywhere except low. And I started to have quicker outs. <clears throat> my ball started to move a little bit more because my finish, I was more focused, less worried about aiming and more focused on just letting it rip low in the zone. So my stuff started biting. My, my two-seamer started running and, and diving a little bit. I started throwing harder because I wasn't concerned about anything except throwing a low pitch. I started having quick games and my new goal became being a low ball pitcher and having a game that was less than two and a half hours. Like I gave up one, one game before all-star break. I gave up eight runs and the game was two hours and 22 minutes. And I'm like, I achieved my goal. I gave up eight runs in the process, but it was a two and a half hour game. You got to define, you got to define success. I love it. But, but it totally changed who I was as a pitcher. And so Kenny Rose, really, he was frustrated. I don't think it was like some teaching technique he had in mind, but he changed my career by telling me I needed to be a low ball pitcher, and if I didn't, I'd be done. And um, that's what I did. And, and really, there were times where I lost focus on just being a low ball pitcher, and I got to the point where I could locate low really well. I'm like, oh, maybe I should try to be perfectly on the outside black here, and it would get me right back into the same problems because I was not a command pitcher. Like, I don't think anyone would say – Guthrie was a command pitcher. I could throw strikes, but as Josh Bard, my catcher with the Indians, once said, he says, he says you're wild in the zone. He told me that when I was like, you're, you don't have a problem throwing strikes necessarily, although you can. 
but you get wild in the zone. Like you're trying to throw outside, you're missing middle. You're trying to throw up, you're missing like inner third. He said, so, you know, you need to work on that. And so that's how I worked on it. And from there on, I really was just, I'm trying to throw it as hard as I can low. And then once I got a feel for low middle, I'm like, well, if I'm missing every pitch, in the, if I'm throwing every pitch in the middle, if I just go a little bit to the left, I can probably hit that outside corner. And I would do it. I'm like, oh, I actually can do it now because I started, I centered my thoughts and my focus in the middle. And then it was easier to expand versus trying to be good at outside, up, in, low and away. I was trying to be good at 10 different locations and I couldn't do any of them. So I just got good at one and then could expand from the one. Makes sense. Well, that, for a long answer. That turned it. it turned out, I think, pretty darn good. Uh, <laughs> just under just under 10 years in the big league, right? Just yeah. tick under. We, we talked yeah. about that a little bit. Um, when people ask how long did you pitch in the major leagues, I say about nine year, nine and a half years longer than I should have probably. Well, I mean, if you look at, I mean, today's metric, the the WAR stat, eighteen points of WAR, five separate years with two hundred plus innings. Again, to me, I, I I got to be teammates with Mark Burley in Toronto, and that like he was going for his fifteenth straight year of throwing two hundred innings, so that became such a a number that mattered to me. And I thought of my, your best ability is availability. And you were just a guy who was going to take the ball. And I think thinking back to those years, 13, 14, 15, uh, watching you with Kansas city, again, it just, as an opponent, it felt like you were the guy, you were going to take the ball every five days. You're going to give your team a good start. And again, whether it was six, eight, two shutout, like you were going to keep your team in the game and give your team a chance to win that day we're going to keep the ball moving uh like you were that's uh, for me looking at pitchers because i i don't know anything about pitching other than the limited stuff that i know you're a guy i would have wanted to play behind i felt that way every day and you were much more threatening to me than i think you probably ever thought you were uh but i i just that's how i perceived you and i I imagine other guys did too so um I don't know. I, I'm you fascinate me, man. Like you're just that's why you're in the middle you're in the middle. You get you get the middle spot. You're gonna get surrounded by you're like surrounded by like Hall of Famers and stuff. So uh, no, I appreciate you, it. you have a Hall of Fame everything else in your life, even though you're not gonna get in the MLB Hall of Fame. Are you you get on the ballot already or are you, you, you should be on? <laughs> I don't think I, I, I was wondering about that. I'm pretty sure they do draw the line somewhere as to who gets on the ballot. I'm certainly going to have the line drawn, the line drawn before, before it gets to my name. But, How does uh, that work? Is it five years out and you have to have 10 years of service time? Or I something? don't even know. I don't. Let's just put it this way, Chris. I'm in zero Hall of Fames. Okay? To my knowledge, I'm in zero Hall of Fames. So if I can get in your, your, uh, your signed baseball Hall of Fame, consider that my, if you want to do an induction ceremony okay. for me, I'd fly out for it because it'll be my only one and I'd appreciate it. We get great content around that, I'm, I'm saying. I, I actually got a text from one of my college teammates yesterday. He was at my, my old high school. His daughter is in a, in a swim meet. And uh, th- he goes, for, in all fairness, you know, I, I bust CC's balls all the time. He goes, but, like, how is he not in the Milford High Hall of Fame? And I said, because I don't care to be. I don't, I'm detached from my hometown. I'm in my college Hall of Fame. I'm not in my high school Hall of Fame, which is interesting. Uh, I don't know if our high school has a Hall of Fame, but if we do, I'm unaware of it. And if I'm in it, they certainly haven't told me. So I, you know. I would think that Stanford 
would need to put you in at some point, right? E- yeah. Even though you weren't, you were only there half the time. Like you've got to be in the conversation. I pitched, I pitched. I mean, I had the record for most innings in a season, so I think in two years I probably pitched as much as most guys pitch in four. But who knows? And you went to the College World Series, correct? Twice. 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 Yeah. Like I, those were twice. the. Those were the years I remember watching you in college. Your teams were, were loaded. Like those Our were the. Carlos Quinton, Sam Fold. Sam yeah. Fold. I was going to just say, Sam Fold was yeah. on those teams. So that, he's got. He had the most College Jeff, World Series hits for. A bit. I don't know was Jeff there. Clement? Jeff Clement was a Stanford guy, or was he USC? He's, he's a USC catcher. He's USC. He ended up being my teammate in 2013. I, that was the only thing I messed up. Uh, like th- those years, um, in those years, Oakland had a draft where they had Kurt Suzuki out of Cal State Fullerton and Landon Powell out of South South Carolina. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, and I remember watching vividly watching Stanford in the College World Series and Sam Fold, New Hampshire native. Uh, I would call him my BFF in baseball um, and Bobby's high school opponent. He said, we told Sam the other day, Bobby, his most scariest moment. What was it, Bobby? What yeah. was the, your quote? Yeah. The most scared, the most scared I've ever been on the baseball field is because of Sam fold. Cause I didn't know who he was. He played in a prep school. So I didn't play him in high school. Didn't really know who he was. And then he, uh, we played him in the Legion state tournament. We had a lefty who was ended up getting drafted got a size double a lefty like 94 nasty and he, when he threw he'd hide he'd come like this and like hide the ball and sam hit a ball like 400 feet foul off of his fastball it was like a fastball his ankle lefty lefty crushed it i was like that was that hasn't happened all year that was weird and then i saw i was playing short so the next pitch was a change up i'm like this is gonna be hilarious like there's no this kid's gonna be so far in front he must have been sitting on it smoked a double to the left center gap so i'm playing short I'm like this little, he's four inches shorter than me. He's just killing balls foul, going oppo gap on a change. I'm like, what is happening right now? And I was like, hey, uh, like, what? Where are you from? What's the deal? It's <laughs> like, where are you going to school? He's like, I'm going to Stanford. I was like, like Stanford, Stanford, like college world series. And he's like, yeah. And then he stole third base. Then he he stole third base right after he finished saying yeah. And I was like, yeah. what just happened? He's the <laughs> fastest kid alive, hitting bombs. He's this tall. He had a yeah. It said he had arm surgery, but he had still had a pretty good arm. Like I don't even know what just happened. He's Bob, like, Bobby was there best for the baseball only player I've two, ever seen in my life. The only two times in Sam Fold's career, he's hit a ball 400 feet and been told he was scary happened in the same day because of Tukes. So, hey, uh, hey Sam, maybe Sam, it says more about me than it says about him. I don't know. He's pretty just good. So you he's know, a pretty good player. Just so you know, uh, alternate guest for today was Sam Fold, but he told me he's on a quasi vacation because guess what? When you're the GM of a major league team, apparently, like you don't have time to go on vacation during the season. So, not amazing. Maybe we'll just make it. We'll have like a run of Stanford alumni on. So you, you know. just you can talk about Carlos Quinton's four hit by pitches at Florida State NC or five. I think he set an NCAA record. Got hit five, five. times in a game. I think so. Was that I, the, the only the only thing that would make that crazy if that was the game that Marshall McDougal hit six bombs? He went seven for seven with six homers. That was or if it was I the game was where Carlos Quinton charged Zach Granke. Oh, we can get into you that. Wow. We've kept you here you entirely too long. Do you have any Granke stories? Any weird? No, I you wish I have. did. I wish I had a Granke story. He's amazing. What a he's got like a whole thing going on with Chipotle right now, right? The guacamole thing. No, that's, that that's ongoing. Out? I use that. I use that reference the other day because oh, I refuse wow. to get. I refuse to get the iCloud ninety nine cent a month thing because it yeah. Apple makes it impossible to delete 
images and videos from your text messages. So every day I get seven messages from iCloud. They only spend 99 cents a month. I won't do it. I just won't do it. They just keep sending me messages. They don't delete anything. It just keeps working. But uh, I, I referenced it in a tweet the other day. I'm like I'm like Zach Greinke with the guac at Chipotle because he won't pay the whatever the dollar ninety nine. They moved guac. it from one fifty like, to one eighty, and he won't get it now. Yeah, <laughs> he was like, I like guac, but yeah. this is getting out of hand. He like That's I got to draw the line it. somewhere. <laughs> well, Zach was uh, when I got. Did you ever hear about these VIP celebrity cards that Chipotle would give out back in the two thousands, like oh seven oh eight range? You ever hear about those, Chris? Yeah. No. I, I, they're 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 touching a nerve. I think. I, I mean, I'm pretty okay, so sure they, I'm aware. They bought a card. Initially, they were metal, and so we had a we had a meal catered by one of my really good friends now, Jody, uh, who lives up in um, Baltimore. She worked for Chipotle, and she came in. She's like, you know what? Like, you love this. You love us so much. I'm going to give you a VIP celebrity card. I said, what the heck is that? It's like, oh, Zach Granke has one. It's like a nice metal card that gives you a free taco or a free burrito or a free salad every day. I'm like, what do you mean every day? She's like, every day, every day. I'm like, really? I said, I need that. So I knew, I learned that Zach Granke had a celebrity card. And then I asked him the next time I saw him, I said, hey, do you have like a, a Chipotle card? He's like, yeah, who told you about that? I said, oh, I just got one as well. But mine wasn't metal. Mine was plastic. By the time I got into the game, I got a plastic one. So I have... I have like seven Chipotle VIP cards. They would they would send me a new one every year, and then all of a sudden it just stopped working. And never they never sent another one. So um, that's how they that's advertise. Amazing. Though they didn't do they didn't put investment into advertising. They just gave famous people a card so they would be seen in Chipotle. I guess so. Yeah. Listen, that makes you in Chipotle's Hall of Fame. Don't oh, don't absolutely. ever sell yourself short. <laughs> so I you said you're not in any Hall of Fames. Oh, good point. If I had some of the paraphernalia, you should see the box this thing comes in. It's this beautifully carved out wood box. It had a, a letter that was sealed like one of those deals where they, you know, like they melt the wax and stamp it. And then it has a, a little special card in it. Um, I kept all That's the stuff. Incredible. That's incredible. That's yeah. incredible. They like yeah. Count of Monte Cristo type was, stuff when they melt the you, wax. You could put whatever you wanted on that card. And free burrito, but it's like, hey, can I get a burrito? You know, can I add, can I add guac? Can I get a bag of chips with that? Can I have a drink? And like, yeah, whatever. And you just scan it. Boom, it was done. Zero balance. And we're out. Give you the, the receipt for zero dollars. So That's a perk. Know, that is I know a perk Zach, right there. I know Zach was enjoying free guac for at least five, six years before he had to pay the Maybe one. that's the story. He's he's a little disgruntled that they they terminated the uh, yeah. the famous. You're not, giving, you're not giving him enough credit. It was actually a $1.80 increase in cost, not just 30 cents. Yeah, exactly. exactly. My Granky story that was messed up was we played, playing, he was with the Dodgers and it must have been 14. And I remember everybody being like, Granky's nasty, Granky's nasty. I go out my first at bat and I'm seeing everything, right? Like I, people ask me about his stuff and I, I don't think his stuff is daunting. I think he just pitched well with it, right? Yeah. So I have like this 10 or 11 pitch at bat, following stuff off, don't get anything to hit. 3-2 finally walks me on the 10th or 11th pitch. It's like a bat flip walk, right? Where you you earned it. Hall so I'm on first. Walk. Yeah, yeah, like you pimp it because you're like, I grinded that one out. So Jason Kubel comes up behind me and hits, you know, a two-out fly ball to right center. And I'm running around the bases, and I end up at third, and I give my helmet to the third base coach somewhere between third and, and, and home. And all of a sudden, Zach, Zach's walking off the field, and he's going, he's like, I don't know, 25, 30 feet away from me. He's like, that was a great at bat. That was unbelievable, dude. Like, that was crazy. And I'm 
like turning around. I was like, is he talking to me? So he's, he comes up and he gives me a, he passed me in the butt. He's like, dude, that was a sick at bat. I can't believe you took some of those pitches. And I've never talked to this guy before in my life. And I was like, I'm standing next to the third base coach. And I'm like, this mother. I was like, and I'm all pissed off. I'm thinking it's like a tactic, right? Like he's trying to get in my head. I didn't know that Granky was just eclectic, eccentric, whatever, like whatever you want to call it, right? Truly appreciated your AB. And yeah, because he's a hit guy, right? Like he bought the place in Orlando just so he could go hit in the offseason. He just loves <laughs> hitting more than pitching. And but then I ended up 0 for three against him because like now he's swimming, right? Like he's in my dome. Like normally I have an at bat against like against a guy like that. And I'm feeling pretty good about it. He got me. He he domed me up. Not on purpose, that probably. That was one of my favorite things when like uh when Miguel Cabrera would would compliment the pitch. If he threw a good pitch, he would like point back at you and be like that's a really good pitch. <laughs> and, and you're, how did you, how, you're sitting there thinking like, is he serious? Or like, I don't, I watch him. I, it's just like big little kid playing the game, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, we've That's kept crazy. you for so long, dude. Uh, you know, you got to win a World Series as part of that Royal team in 2015. And you're welcome. I don't, I, like, I don't, how am I supposed to handle this? Like, I don't. I don't like it's just weird still. I I feel bad that I didn't win and you did. So as much as I'm I'm jealous of the rest of your life, so I might as well be jealous of that too. Like that's why it happened, right? Like that's why. Because you're you're like everything. You, you have like it's the shoes, the celebrity friends, the music. You got everything, man. So you're you're doing it. Well, I appreciate it. You guys are doing it as well. Um Love the app. Love what you guys are doing for for players and helping them progress in their careers. And uh, look forward to being a part in any way I can to to help you guys and support you guys. So it's a pleasure to have you on. I need to talk to you more often. Um, Thank you again, dude. And uh, I I speak for Bobby and Patrick as well. This this was awesome. This episode is going to get a lot of run, I think. And uh, well, I don't know if we're still recording or not. I've I've lost your visual, but uh, we are. This this episode should be brought to you by the Backstreet Boys. A very Backstreet Christmas um, can be found on Amazon. Uh, <laughs> any of the any of the main sites, as you will recognize here, I'm uh, I'm still a hard copy guy for my for the groups that I support. I buy hard copies. And um, fantastic album. Check them out on the Today Show. Uh, Good Morning America, I think, December the eighth. And uh, have a Merry Christmas. When the tour comes to Boston, don't be afraid to just slide out here, man, and we'll go catch a show, dude. Like, you know what's amazing? Uh, I was down in Arizona with the international all-star team that was put together by Zach, and we they started singing Backstreet Boys on a bus ride one day, and so I told them about the Backstreet Boys, and then I texted Brian in the middle of the night. He responded back, and like he was he was bantering back with these kids. And so they were in Germany for like 25 straight shows. And one of the players who was from Germany took his, his mom and his grandma to the Backstreet Boys two weeks later. Brian took care of him, gave him tickets, brought him backstage. That's awesome. And uh, he went to the Backstreet Boys. So. Incredible stuff, man. That's awesome. I uh, I would fanboy really hard. I'd be like a 14-year-old if I, if I see those guys in concert. And I would say, my love is all. Sorry. Uh, on that note. Jeremy, thank you so much. Pickle out!